Father God, we thank you for this day and for the opportunity to worship together. Lord, I ask that as we look at what you have to say for us in your gospel, that you would be glorified and we would be edified, and that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would soften our hearts to the hope of the resurrection, which you teach us today. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Luke chapter 20, verses 27 to 38, or look at the back of your bulletin. That's Luke chapter 20, verses 27 to 38. In Ecclesiastes 3.11, there's this great verse which reads, that God has set eternity onto man's heart, and yet no one can fathom what he has done from beginning to end. Our hearts are made for eternity, for the resurrection. And yet there's so much we don't know about these things. Like, what really happens, or what does this mean? How does this story end? Well, when I was about 10 years old, you know, I still didn't know the answer to this question, but I knew that whatever it meant, when Jesus would come back, I wanted to be ready. And so naturally, I had a go bag. And in that go bag, of course, I had my favorite toys and a single candy bar. Because I didn't know what was going to happen. But Captain America and my Snickers, they're coming with me. <laughs> All right? Priorities, right? I was set for eternity. But it's true, right? God has set eternity into man's heart, and it's true even for children, that we long to look into this mysterious reality. It might make us wonder, if we are made for this eternity, if we are made for the resurrection, what do we really believe about it? How does the story end? And what are the implications for us today? Well, Jesus answers this question in the passage that we're looking at today. Well, where have we been? Last week, Jean preached on the story of Jesus and Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10, where we learned that nobody is beyond the reach of God's grace. But a lot's happened since then. That's the beginning of Luke chapter 19, and now we're in the middle of Luke chapter 20. So basically what's been going on is Jesus' authority is getting questioned. Most recently, his authority was questioned about baptism and then about taxes, which prompts Jesus' famous response, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and give to God what is God's. Well, today, Jesus' authority is being questioned again, but this time it's about the resurrection. There's a lot of great stuff that we can unpack here in this passage of Scripture, and I think we can boil it down to two main points. The resurrection gives us hope for eternity. And when we look at the resurrection hope for eternity, I want us to consider both how it impacts our relationships with God and each other, and also how it gives us hope for the dead. And the second point is that the resurrection gives us purpose for today. The resurrection gives us purpose for today. So let's get started. Let's take a look at verse 27. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. So throughout the gospel, Jesus is engaging with different religious groups, right? And they're all trying to either question his claim to be the Son of God, or at least casting doubt on his authority as a teacher. These groups are typically the scribes, the chief priests, and the Pharisees. But today we're introduced to another group called the Sadducees. Who are the Sadducees? 
Luke only mentions them once. And that's right here in the passage we're in today. What we know about them is that they are a priestly group who denies the resurrection. But, fun little piece of Bible trivia for you, if you're ever on a game show, Diane. So, anyway, so the, the Sadducees, there's nothing left that they've written. We don't have any of their papers. So really, what does that say about them? They're not so hot, right? Their papers all died out with them, but we do have what Jesus says, so I think it tells us who won here. But what are they on about anyways, right? What, what is this resurrection? The word resurrection means rising, a rising up. And this is a basic Christian doctrine that we recite every week, right? When we get to the end of our creed, when we say, we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. In this doctrine of the resurrection, it promises us more than a spiritual reunion with God and with our loved ones in Christ. It promises us real, physical, perfected bodies as well. But these Sadducees, who deny the resurrection, they're casting doubt on an idea of eternal hope, and they have a lot in common with most worldviews, which are a contra to uh, Christianity, right? Anything that you've ever seen that's kind of against what you believe. So these are the kind of people who, if you said, I'm a Christian, they're going to say something like, well, that's good for you. You live your truth, and I'll live mine. Or they might say something like, oh, it's cool that you believe in this resurrection, or that this is your hope, but it's not working for me, and so I don't believe it. They claim that all we have is what we have now, that there is no eternal hope. And it's with that kind of doubt, with that kind of a pessimistic worldview that these Sadducees come to Jesus and ask a question about the resurrection anyways, which we see starting in verse 28. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children, and the second, and the third took her. And likewise, all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as a wife. It's kind of like an ACT question, you know? They're like, if you have one cake, and you cut it into 20 slices, and you have 15 friends, how many apples are in the bucket? Right? <laughs> Super confusing. Doesn't make any sense. Right? It's an intentionally confusing question. But notice how they ask the question here. They're asking in the form of a parable. They're asking in a story. See, the Sadducees have been paying attention to Jesus. He's gaining some ground. He's a pretty popular teacher, right? Even if you don't like what he says, you have to admit, he's pretty clever. He always tells these stories, and people always end up confused. So they want to beat Jesus at his own game, right? And they ask him a question in the form of a story. Well, where do they get this problem from anyways? Do they just pull it out of thin air? Well, the answer to that question is no. They get it from Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 through 10, where we read about a law, where in which to protect the dignity of a widow and preserve the line of a family. If a man were to die, his brother would marry the widow. So the Sadducees take this law from Moses, and they present a carefully crafted problem. 
designed to trap Jesus by getting him to contradict Moses' law. But Jesus does something to their story that nobody was ever able to do to his story. He refutes the principle of their story with an answer from Scripture. And that brings us to our first point, which we'll expound on in verses 34 and 35. The resurrection gives us hope for eternity. The resurrection gives us hope for eternity. Let's look at verse 34. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. So the hope for eternity here is not that you get bailed out from your marriage in eternity, okay? This is one of those passages, though, that confuses or even concerns a lot of people, right? I can think of at least two ways. Well, considered worthy to attain the resurrection, how am I, can I be considered worthy to attain the resurrection? Or, if there's no such thing as marriage in the afterlife, what does my relationship with my spouse or even my other loved ones look like when I die? Well, I hope that the answers offered to these questions help us to understand that the resurrection gives hope to those who are in Christ, hope for eternity, because it gives us hope that our relationships with God and with one another will be perfected. So let's look at that verse 35, right? To be considered worthy to attain to that age. The phrase considered worthy is important because it's not telling us that we can somehow earn salvation. It's not saying that you can make your own worthiness or generate it yourself, okay? The, one of the great lies of our time is that, well, no matter what really happens, it's all about performance in the end of the day, right? Just being a good person. So you must have your life together, whatever that means for you, because if there is a God, whatever that means for you, if your good outweighs your bad, whatever that means for you, you're probably good to go, whatever that means for you. See, the idea takes truth and grace out of the equation. But rather, in the original language that this was written in, which is Greek, the phrase considered worthy is just one word. And it points to somebody who is operating the scale. Whether or not it is actually balanced is not always the question here. So who balances the scale? These are Sunday school questions. God balances the scale. How then are we considered worthy? Only by faith in Jesus Christ. Then we have this word attain. Considered worthy to attain to that age. Well, what does that mean? In the Greek, it's literally the opposite of the word sin. The word sin literally means to miss the mark. The word attain literally means to hit the mark. So those who hit the mark, those who place their faith in Christ, are worthy of the resurrection based solely upon the finished work of Christ upon the cross for us. All right, now for the tricky question of the two. What will our relationships with our spouses or even our other loved ones look like when we die? Well, get your pen and paper out. It's a pretty long answer, right? You ready? We don't know. Just what you wanted to hear, right? But there are a lot of theories out there, right, about what this might look like, but the reality is there's nothing in Scripture that really clearly says what this will look like. Probably the closest we get is verse 35, which says you're neither married or given in marriage on the kingdom. 
But here's what we do know. That the new heaven and the new earth is perfect. And if the new heaven and the new earth is perfect, then that means that our relationships will be perfect too. And remember, every time in Scripture where we see an encounter with somebody who has gone on to glory, like, right, like in the Transfiguration, we see Moses and Elijah. And then in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, which we talked about a few weeks ago, we notice something about those encounters, right? That everybody recognizes each other, right? They know who each other are. And so while we don't know what these relationships will really look like, We will know each other in the kingdom of God, it seems, and we will be in perfect union with God and with one another. See, the resurrection gives us hope for eternity because in Christ, our relationships with one another and with God are perfect. Let's continue on to verse 36. For they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. Here we see this full circle story of the resurrection and the gospel. That in Christ, in this resurrection, we will be as we were always meant to be. Perfect. Perfect. In union with God and with one another, and we will never die. Now that's good news. Because I don't know about you, but I woke up with really bad pain in my right hip this morning, and I'm tired of my body dying out from under me. This is something to look forward to. (laughs) Let's continue to verses 37 and 38, where we'll see some more implications of the resurrection for eternity and right now. In verse 37, But the dead are raised, even Moses showed, in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. So Jesus is referring to a story in Exodus, right, where Moses encounters God in a burning bush. And what is said about this passage, about the burning bush, is significant. Because remember, it's God who introduces himself as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. In Exodus 3.6, but then why does that have anything to do with God being the God of the living? These three guys have been dead long before Moses came on the scene. Why does it matter? Well, look back at Luke 20, 37. The dead are raised. Not the dead will be raised, like it's some sort of distant reality. The dead are raised, because in Christ, the story is complete. The promises are fulfilled even while we wait. See, Jesus identifies God as the God of the living while using a passage about three dead dudes to prove it. Since God is the God of the living, not the dead, God's own introduction as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob says something important about these three guys. That even though they died, they are now more alive than they ever were before. Because God is the God of the living. In Christ, the story is complete. What does Jesus say to the criminal on the cross? Today you will be with me in paradise. So today, Bishop Peter Beckwith is with Jesus in paradise. Today, my grandma, Edna Jones, is with Jesus in paradise. Today, Jack Nolte is with Jesus in paradise. Today, Bobby Schmidt is with Jesus in paradise. Today, Donna Dillon is with Jesus in paradise. Today, Carolyn Patricka is with Jesus in paradise. 
And today, everyone who beat them to glory is with Jesus in paradise. And they are waiting there in glory with Jesus today in paradise, even while we wait for the bodily resurrection on the last day. The resurrection gives us hope for eternity because it restores our relationships with God and one another and because it gives us hope for the dead. Let's look at verse 38. Now he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. I don't know if you've like checked your pulse this morning or not, but if you've got something going on there, like a heartbeat, for example, a little basic biology class, uh, that means you're alive. So if God is the God of the living, and you're alive, well, it means God is your God. And if we live to God, which Jesus says right here is what we do, all the living live to him, then it means we have a purpose for our lives today. Many people today don't really believe in purpose, do they? They'll tell you that the world is without order, that we're all here on accident. They'll say there's nothing after death. Life is accidental chaos, and if by chance there is a God, well, he's certainly not in control. Just look around you. But Jesus begs to differ, and it impacts our life, our ordinary life, right now. Our second point is the resurrection gives us purpose for today. The resurrection gives us purpose for today. So what's the purpose? Jesus says it in verse 38, to live to God. What's that mean? Well, the Westminster Catechism expounds on this, I think, really well in its first question, which is, what is the chief end of man? Well, the answer to that question is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Isn't that great? I love that. Glorify God and enjoy him forever. And if our purpose to glorify is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, it means that that's what it means to live to God, to glorify him and enjoy him forever. Think about what that means about God. If we're supposed to glorify God and enjoy him forever, starting now, well, that means that God is with us right now. God is present. He's not far away. He's not disinterested. He's not uninvolved. God is in control. Let that sink in for a moment, that God is in control. Because if God is in control and he made us for himself, and he made us for a purpose, then it says something about the world around us, right? This world, which is often tragic and painful and frustrating, begins to make a little sense when we see that a God who has made us for a purpose is in control of all this. Suddenly, the chaos around us is kind of like a chorus, and the tragedy that we're going through in our lives becomes a tapestry where we watch God work out his sovereign and perfect will in each of our lives. And so, when you do or do not get in to your dream college, when you get a promotion, or when you lose a job, when a loved one is healed, or when a loved one dies, even while we mourn, we can hold fast to that hope of the resurrection and the purpose it gives us for today. Because our triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, 
is intimately involved in our life, and it's that reality alone which can give us hope and purpose for today. So the resurrection gives us hope for eternity. The resurrection gives us purpose for today. Well, these realities are life-changing because the hope of the gospel is not that Jesus takes us from being bad people to good people. It's that Jesus brings us from death to life. This beautiful reality that death is defeated has been accomplished by Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And outside of the writers of Scripture, I can't think of anybody who says this more beautifully than C.S. Lewis does in Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. So I'm going to read a little bit from there. This is right after Aslan dies on the stone tables in place of a boy named Edmund. It was quite definitely early morning now, not late night. I'm so cold, said Lucy. So am I, said Susan. Let's walk about a bit. They walked to and fro more times than they could count between the dead Aslan and the eastern ridge, trying to keep warm, and oh, how tired their legs felt. At that moment, they heard from behind them a loud noise, a great cracking, a deafening noise, as if a giant had broken a giant's plate. What's that, said Lucy, clutching Susan's arm. I, I feel afraid to turn around, said Susan. Something awful is happening. They're doing something worse to him, said Lucy. Come on. And she turned, pulling Susan around with her. Well, the sun in its rising had made everything look so different. All the colors and shadows were changed, that for a moment they didn't see the important thing. Then they did. The stone table was broken in two pieces by a great crack, that ran down it from end to end, and there was no Aslan. Oh, 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 cried the two girls, rushing back to the table. Oh, it's too bad, sobbed Lucy. They might have left the body alone. Who's done it, cried Susan. What does it mean? Is it more magic? Yes, said a great voice behind their backs. It is more magic. They looked around, and there, shining in the sunrise, larger than they had seen him before, shaking his mane, for it had apparently grown back stood Aslan himself. Oh, Aslan, cried both the children, staring up at him, almost as much frightened as they were glad. Aren't you dead then, dear Aslan, said Lucy. Not now, said Aslan. You're not, not a, asked Susan in a shaky voice. She couldn't bring herself to say the word ghost. Aslan stooped his golden head and licked her forehead. The warmth of his breath and a rich sort of smell that seemed to hang about his hair came all over her. Do I look it, he said. Oh, you're real, you're real. Oh, Aslan, cried Lucy, and both girls flung themselves upon him and covered him with kisses. But what does it all mean? Asked Susan when they were somewhat calmer. It means, said Aslan, that though the witch knew the deep magic, there is a magic deeper still which she did not know. Her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time. But if she could have looked a little further back into the stillness and the darkness before time dawned, she would have read there a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim who has committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. It's good. Death itself would start working backwards. And death itself has started to work backwards. Christ is the willing victim. 
who died in the stead of a traitor. And what he accomplished on the cross in his death, burial, and resurrection is the great reversal of death. That even now in Christ, we get to experience a new life in him. Death is working backwards. And we got to celebrate this reality in two different ways last Sunday. Remember in baptism, we celebrated the adoption of Elizabeth into the covenant family of God. And we committed as a church family to partner with her parents in raising her up in the faith. That she would make this faith her own and fully experience this new life. And since it was All Saints Sunday, we remember those who have gone before us in the certain hope of the resurrection. That they walked in newness of life in Christ here on earth and now experience the full unveiling of this beautiful reality in his presence today. That's our hope. And have you noticed how desperately hopeless the world is? See, the beauty of this message of the hope of the resurrection is that it impacts everybody's lives. And there's someone in each of our lives who needs to know this reality today. So tell them. Tell them, come and see. Come and see this reason for the hope within. Because in the promise of the resurrection, we have hope for today. A bright hope for tomorrow, as the old hymn goes. And as we continue to worship together in song and in prayer, and as we leave this place to live out the message of the gospel in our lives. Let's rejoice in that. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your gospel, for the hope of the resurrection. We ask, Lord, that you would convict in our hearts by your Holy Spirit a will and a determination to live out this reality in a way that shows hope to our neighbor. And as we continue to worship together, Lord, we ask that you would be glorified and we would be edified and prepared to go out and do the work you've prepared for us to do. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.